Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Are you struggling to make decisions that will benefit your future self? Are you constantly prioritizing short-term gains over long-term success? Ann Wilson is a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University and part of Laurier's social psychology program. Ann is fascinated by how people behave, think, and understand themselves and their social worlds, especially regarding how people make decisions. During our conversation, we explore the science behind motivation and decision-making for our long-term selves. We examine the concept of temporal discounting and how to combat by making our future selves closer to our present selves. Anne also points out how to balance the need for distance and reflection to cope with trauma and negative experiences. Our memories and perception of time are malleable, and we discuss how to use this to our advantage to shift our mindset and accomplish our goals. We also discuss the strategies for parents to support their children's growth mindset and handling failures. Please enjoy my conversation with Anne Wilson. So, Ann Wilson, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. So, where where do we find you at today? So, I'm at, uh, well, I'm at my home office right now, but I am at Wilfrid Laurier University, which is in Waterloo in Canada. So, where exactly is, is Waterloo, like outside of Toronto? Yeah, it's about an hour from Toronto. Okay. All right. Well, as we were talking before I hit record, um, I initially found your work through one of our prior guests, Jason Pfeiffer, um, at Entrepreneur Magazine or Entrepreneur.com. And I was really uh, taken back with with your conversation with him about the work that you do and memory and future self and and present self. And I I just had a conversation with Hal um, Hirschfield at uh, UCLA a few weeks ago. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with Hal and his his work. Yeah, actually, I he just came to mind as I was thinking about some of the stuff we might chat about uh, today. Yeah, so he's coming out with his new book, uh, The Future Self, uh, in June. So he'll okay. uh, his his show will get uh, kind of released around around then. But um, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it's a subject I'm really interested in learning more about. Um, you know, especially from what I do as a financial advisor, and then the the work I do as a parent. So, um, but why don't we start with with you and your background? Can you um, let our audience know um, what kind of work you do in, in your background? Sure. Well, I can say a little bit about like my background, where I came from. So I, I was a, I'm a first generation student. So um, first in my family to go to university. And when I started out going to university, um, I uh, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do at all. Um, I was really good in the hard sciences in high school. So I actually had a guidance counselor who told me that I owed it to women 
um, <laughs> to uh, go into hard sciences, right? Biology, chemistry, physics, that sort of sure. thing. Um, so that's what I signed up for. Um, but over the first even couple of years of um, university, I found myself really excited about the the electives um, and planning out the psychology and the sociology and the anthropology courses, those sorts of things. So I ended up switching majors to the social sciences. And it was when I first took social psychology. So I consider myself a social psychologist. Um, I took my first course in my third year. And that's really what hooked me is what's neat about social psychology is it allows you to use um, the systematic uh, scientific method, but to study what I consider to be some of the most fascinating and complicated problems out there, right, about human behavior and thinking and, and emotion. Um, so that's really what I've been doing since then. Um, I also just want to really nod to the importance of um, mentorship, because as a first generation student, I had no idea what was even possible. And it was really my professor who showed me the path and the things that I could possibly do with my uh, with my life. Right. Um, so I went to grad school. Actually, I'm in Waterloo now, but I, I started um, in, I've been in Waterloo since grad school, I went to the University of Waterloo, which is the bigger university down the street um, in this same uh, same town. Um, and since then, I've really been studying how people think about themselves over time, um, how they think about their past, their memories, and how their memories are often pretty valuable. Uh, val- <laughs> valuable, that's a new word. So that's fallible <laughs> and malleable <laughs> put together. That that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. um, and And how they think about their future as well. Um, and, uh, when I was thinking about, uh, my lab now, so my lab is called impetus lab. Um, and this is an acronym. A yes. lot of us, we're all nerds. So we try to come up with, you know, acronyms that, that represent what we do. Um, so I sat down with a bunch of my students and we played around with different kinds of acronyms. And so what that stands for is identity, motivation, and perception extended in time and across society. Um, so it's kind of a mouthful. Um, But it really, it stands for this idea of the stories that we tell about ourselves, about others, and even about the world more generally. So I I look at this both for individuals, for relationships, as well as for like the society level. We have collective identities and we think about our nation's past and our nation's future and so on, right, as well. Um, And so how we do that um, and the way that that helps us to make meaning, um, how to find motivation, to chart a path forward. Um, and just also to feel better about ourselves a lot of the time. I was so you've already answered one of my questions, which was to explain what the Epitest Lab is and what you do there. Um, I love acronyms. So as most uh, I mean, your listeners know, my firm Tama um, was built off of the first letter of my wife and my kids' first name. So my wife is Teresa Aiden. Madison, Mackenzie, and Andrew. So oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I always, and I, my, my story is like, I, I, when I tell that, I explain that I am always first to say, like, I did not come up with that. My career mentor, Camille Jane did. Um, and it's, it's really stuck because that's who I mainly work with are families, whether you have multiples like I do, or you just have multiple kids. Um, you know, it's, it's really centered around family. And so, you know, having, you know, experts like you come on and talk about memories and how your work um, looks at what you choose, what you do and choose today in decision-making versus 
um, what you do or how you treat your 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 future self. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the point the the where I would like to start is you know going back to that that conversation that you had with with Jason Pfeiffer is these stories that we tell ourselves and the the memories that we have or think we have or or make how how closely do those resemble uh the truth and and what actually happened i i think the example that jason gave which was really cool was you know he decided to quit his job as a small town reporter because he wanted to you know write for the times or the washington post and he knew that you know if no one was going to come to him he was going to have to go to them and so the way he tells that story it's like this great big adventure that he did and then he's like well did it really happen that way i'm like yeah i quit my job yeah i i did get that invite to do the uh, a freelance article for the for the post but that did all that other stuff really happen <laughs> Yeah. So that's a great example, I think, of what most of us do on a pretty regular basis, right? Is we tell these stories, we're sort of weaving tales about ourselves through time. And by doing that, we're both pulling some things from our real memory and also um, shaping those memories uh, into something that might be a little different than what they were originally, right? So the, the very act of storytelling can sometimes actually change the way that we recall the past over time. Um, And this can happen when we're just sort of developing a narrative of our own life story. Um, Some people do this in a way where we're the main character in an adventure. We start off from, you know, these kind of difficult roots, and then we move on to bigger and better things. Um, And some people have like different, maybe sadder versions of a story. Um, But the way that we tell that story can um, end up being kind of like a, a foundation for how we then end up thinking about what our future is going to look like. Um, so um, one of the the things that I could maybe highlight, if it's if it's okay to step back one step too, is to just give you just like sort of a little brief primer on um, mental time travel more generally, like the the science. Of, yes, lay it on us, Anne. <laughs> Um, So if you think about ourselves through time, the only thing we have direct access to is the the current moment, right? The present, just right now. Um, Everything else we need to mentally time travel to get to. Um, And, you know, we haven't built a time machine yet, but our brains do a pretty good job of transporting us to the past and to the future. And theorists, I'm not a I don't do comparative research with animals, but a lot of theorists who do say that, you know, humans, one of the things that's really distinct about humans is our ability to mentally time travel in these really rich and nuanced ways to episodic uh, memories of the past, right? Where we have a whole story of the past, not just like specific knowledge that we've gained, as well as a story about our future. Um, And so the thing to remember though, is that all of that mental time travel, past and future is simulation. Um, and what I mean by that is like, we, we're making it up, right? We're, we're constructing it um, uh, to, to some degree. Um, and we all kind of know that about the future, right? So the future is just by its nature, it's hypothetical. So we know that we're simulating that to some extent. Um, and we don't often recognize that as much about the past. So sometimes we think about the past as though we're just sort of pulling a file out of our 
our memory drawer, right? And and then we replay the video, and that's what it ha- that's what had happened initially. Um, but that's really not the way memory works. So it works a lot more like that same constructive process of thinking about the future. Um, you can think of it like an archaeologist piecing together a story of the past from little bits of artifact, right? So we're doing that with our own past all of the time. And so um, there's a lot of flexibility in there. Um, and what's cool about that, you can call that fallibility, but you can also call that poetic license. Um, and some theorists have suggested that some of that that malleability, uh, how elastic our, our um, memory is, uh, that it might not be a bug. It might not be like a bad thing about our memory, but rather it's a feature uh, because it turns out that part the, the same parts of our brain that um, tend to reconstruct the past are also deeply involved in how we construct the future, right? Um, And so it could be that the very fact that we tend to be very uh, creative and flexible in how we remember the past also allows us to have the creativity and the flexibility in how we map on our future, right? So basically the same parts of our brain lights up. Um, When we think about our past and when we think about our future, People who have amnesia um, have trouble thinking about future planning, right? So there seems to be a, a really deep connection between these two processes. Um, and so that's, in a nutshell, what um, mental time travel is all based on, right? Um, and then what I've studied in my lab um, starts from that basic insight um, that the past is really, really malleable. Um, But then we've tried to look at like, what are the factors that end up causing us to sometimes remember the past as quite different than it really is? Um, So one example of that is um, we often tend to remember the past as uh, as worse than it actually was. So we tend to kind of retrospectively downgrade the past, be more critical of our past self than than we actually were at the time. And that seems to allow us maybe in the same way that that Jason's story uh, suggested uh, to have this onward and upward kind of vision of ourselves over time um, where we really imagine ourselves as continuing to get better and better into the future. That's interesting because I always thought that we saw our our memories or, or history as better than what they were, not worse than what they were. And I just think of the, just think of the term, like the good old days, like we we were reminiscing about how good the, the past was when it maybe not, it maybe wasn't so good. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually that, that segues to another thing I want to talk about a little bit. So um, although we sometimes think about our pasts as worse than our present, right? Because we like to feel this sense of continuous improvement. There's also obviously some some really positive memories that we cherish in the past. We have nostalgic uh, kinds of experiences that we keep revisiting and so on. Um, And so this actually uh, is another thing that I've studied a lot in the lab, which is um, how do we manage both the good and the bad in our past in ways that help us to feel pretty coherent and integrated in the present, right? Um, And so it's not just memory itself that can be malleable, but also our very sense of time. Um, And I've been really fascinated by this idea of subjective time. Um, So subjective time is easy, I think, for people to to think about, to understand. Just, you know, you can think about, most of us can think about a time that we know happened a long time ago, but it feels like yesterday, right? It might be a wonderful vacation. It could be our wedding, the birth of our children, something like that. Um, 
And then there's also times where we can, we, we know it didn't happen that long ago. So maybe it was, you know, an embarrassing event or, or a failure that happened sometime in the last year, but that feels like ancient history to us, right? So subjectively, um, things can feel pretty close or far away, even when they actually happened around the same time in, um, in chronological time. And so this subjective sense of time um, is important because it allows us in many cases, the psychologically healthy people often tend to push the negatives further psychologically into the past to allow them to have some emotional distance from those events. Um, while at the same time, if you ask them how close positive events feel, they'll say, oh, those positive events feel pretty close, like yesterday, right? So that's the good old days. Those things still feel pretty vivid um, to us. And uh, one of the nice things about that is that it allows us to keep dipping into um, all of those good things from our past and include them in our current sense of identity. Um, but it can relegate some of the negatives to a different self, right? So we no longer include some of those uh, those negative events in our identity to the same degree. Does that does that concept lend itself to um, not having a I guess an accurate picture of this time travel that we're in. And I guess more specifically, does that, can that harm or hurt us um, either emotionally or, or mentally? To, um, to, to sort of move our sense of time around. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it. That's a really good question and one I only have a partial answer for. It's actually something we're continuing to grapple with in my lab. So on one hand, um, you could imagine that um, distancing negatives, right? Like pushing things away could be a bit of an avoidant tendency. Like maybe I, I don't want to face up to them. I don't want to acknowledge my, um, my mistakes and that sort of thing. I mean, that could keep you from learning from them. Um, but on the other hand, when negatives are too close and too painful, that's often when emotionally we have the most um, desire to kind of protect ourselves, right? So it may actually be that there's a sweet spot somewhere in there, right? We don't want to just um, run away from negative events. Um, we want to keep them close enough to be able to reflect on them and to learn and grow from them. Um, but doing it in a way that allows us to get enough emotional distance that we aren't feeling like we just have to, you know, crawl into a corner and, and hide. Um, and so there are other researchers, actually, Ethan Cross is one of them that looks at this idea of psychological distance and um, different ways of doing that from, say, a clinical perspective to help people to cope with trauma. Um, and, you know, imagining yourself almost like a fly on the wall, looking down at some memory or something like that, just to, to keep you, you from getting too immersed in the emotions of it um, can be useful. So I think that, you know, it's a complex question, but, um, but that's at least a part of an answer. Yeah, I was when you were when you were saying that the first thing that I thought was okay. Well, this is where the cognitive therapists come into play and helping someone specifically sort sort through that, um, yeah. and especially like trauma um, is a big one. Let me because the one thing you 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 keep you've mentioned time and time again is the work that we do in the lab. Mm -hmm. So can you like lift up the hood and and explain to us like 
what exactly does a lab like yours do and how does it how does it work like how do you get all this great research and then start formulating these into concepts or or theories yeah so the approaches that we tend to take primarily are experimental approaches which means that we try to hold as many things constant as possible and only subtly move around one or two things at a time, right? So we can actually look at the cause and effects of those things. Um, and a lot of what we study is um, people's personal experiences of their memories or of their identities. So it means we can rely a fair bit on self-report. Um, so a lot of times that means we're looking at um, you know, doing questionnaires um, and asking people to think about the same point in the past, for example, or to remember some event and tell us a little bit about it, to describe an event um, from their own personal past, and then ask them systematically different kinds of questions about that, depending on how we want them to think about it. So we could, for example, make people feel really close or far away from a past event that happened. Um, one way that we've done that is to um, give people a timeline. This is just a spatial timeline, right? So think about your time from birth to today and then put that event on the timeline. And if we give people a timeline from birth to today, then event, an event, say from a year or two ago, actually looks pretty close to today, right? But you could also give people a timeline that only goes from, say, for students age 16 to today, right? So say it's a timeline that goes four or five years. Then we say, okay, put that event on a timeline. And now suddenly the timeline is, is expanded, right? So it's from 16 to today and, and the, the bad event happened when I was 17, right? So now the event looks really far away from today. I've placed it on the other end of the timeline. Um, and so that's just like a, a tricky um, uh, experimental manipulation approach to get people to temporarily feel like an event is either really close or really far away from today. And we find when people do that, um, they feel like that same memory is either pretty distant or pretty recent, and it has different emotional implications for the present. Um, you can do other things too. So another um, example is to get people to recount the same story from um, an immersed first-person perspective, like I am going through this again. This is how I'm feeling. Like put yourself in the moment, talk about it in present tense, or to get people to recount that event from a third-person, more distanced perspective. So I see Anne in the picture and she's going through these events, right? Um, and that can also cause people to feel more close and immersed uh, to, with, with that memory or to feel more distant. In, in a similar way that we when we create these stories for ourselves, if, if I kind of tr try to tie this back to what I do as a, as a financial advisor and, and helping people make financial decisions that are clearly tied to emotional decisions, does your, does your work center on or ha have, have you had any work that's focused on how people make decisions and the, the stories that they tell themselves to you know, either justify a decision or, um, you know, lead them down some some path to to help them make a decision that was both financial and emotional and in together. Oh, that's a good 
good question. So I don't, I don't know if I can answer the, I don't know if I've got a, a study that, that gets at exactly that, but I'll tell you a little bit about how we've approached this question of um, making decisions for and pursuing goals for the future, right? Um, and so I think about the past and the future as flip sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Um, and so a lot of the same things I've talked about, subjective time, um, the malleability of our, our visions um, are similar for the past and for the future. Um, so people are often motivated to make decisions now that are going to benefit their longer term selves, right? They are often motivated to pursue longer term goals, for example, uh, maybe making financial decisions that mean taking a bit of a hit now, right? So maybe some sacrifice today because they know it's going to be good for their long-term future. Could also mean, you know, I want to skip a party I'd like to go to this weekend because I know I have a big project to finish or, um, you know, I'm going to forgo Netflix because I uh, want to get to the gym and um, get some exercise, right? So all of these are really, it's like this core human problem, Um and it's something called temporal discounting. Uh, and it's this idea that we tend to value things that are in our immediate future a lot more than things that are in our more distant future. So we tend to undervalue things that are more distant. Um, and part of the reason for that is that um, those distant rewards, um, they're going to ourselves, but they're going to a self that doesn't quite feel like us, right? Um, and this this might make you think of some of the conversations you've had with with Hal Hirschfeld, actually. Um, but uh, so the idea is that um, you know if we're if we're making a sacrifice today, it might feel like we're making that sacrifice almost like it's for a different person, for a stranger in the future. But because our sense of time is so malleable, that's something that we can also work with. Um, and so one way that we can do that is to make those future selves feel closer and more continuous with the present self. One approach we've taken to doing that is by asking people to write a letter to their future self. And in one study, we actually got them to then put their, themselves in the shoes of their future self and write a letter back to their present self. Um, so we, we did that with high school students um, and that both made them feel more connected to this future self um, of a few years down the road. And it also made them more motivated to stay focused on their academics now because that was going to connect to their their future goals, right? Um, Hal Hirschfeld has looked at one of my favorite studies that, that he and his colleagues have done. Look at, um, they take a picture of uh, yes. yourself today and then they age it, right? Yes. So virtually yeah. age it. Um, and people are more likely to save money, uh, I think, for retirement in that study um, if they are face to face with, if they get to meet their um, their older future self. Right. Um, so I think that that's another way that this flexibility and time travel can really work in our favor if we want to be making decisions that are good for us in the long run, even though there are sometimes roadblocks in the short run. Yeah. that And that's that's a topic. It, it's funny. You, you just said that because I was just thinking that's, I think, one of the hardest things about having long-term goals is this issue of the messy middle, if you will. I let Fishbach, um, who I had on the show, um, I think towards the end of last year, um, she wrote a book called Get It Done. And, and that's one of the that was one of the areas that she really focused on in on was especially with with long-term goals, you you see the benefit of saving for that future self, but it's, 
when, when you're in the, the, the thick of it and in, in, in literally like in the middle, it's sometimes easier to forget that future self and do what you want to do today. Yeah. And so for long-term goals, it's, that's where that, that, um, I, and I'm forgetting exactly how she coined, coined her phrase with that, but that, that medium term, uh, is, is what really can derail people. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually chatted with Violet Fishbach about exactly this stuff that I think we're very much on the same page about some of it. And I'll tell you, so although one of the approaches that I've taken in my lab is to try to get people to feel closer to their future selves, um, that's not the only way to, to go about staying focused on these sorts of goals. So I think one of the insights that, um, that Fishbach has really contributed, which I think is, um, it's, it's really That's important. so awesome that you, 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 you know, I let's work as well. Obviously I knew you would probably would know Hal's work, but yeah, this is the, the interconnectedness is always great when I, when I land yeah, these connections on the, on the some, show. Really neat intersections, right? <laughs> I guess, uh, us, the, the social psychologists of the world are all uh, a bit of a, an inbred group in some ways. I could um, have a social psychologist on the show every week. Cause it, to me, it's just fascinating because like I kind of said before, I think is that, coming from what I do as a advisor, but also as a parent as well, there's so many, um, I think when somebody thinks of a, of a financial advisor, they think strictly of somebody that deals with numbers, picking stocks, that's it. But as I stress to people, what I do as a financial planner, it's more emotional than it is financial. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's um, understanding right? The way that our emotions and the way that our cognitive biases can create pitfalls for ourselves, right? Yes. Um, is just so useful. I teach a course on applied social psychology and one of the topics I cover is, is motivation. And I have the little subtitle for the lecture, something like getting out of your own way, right? Mm-hmm. So basically just figuring out the things that you do that essentially shoot yourself in the foot. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so I think one of the things just to build on, um, those, those insights about that medium term, um, one thing that's pretty neat there is that sometimes it's actually rather than fighting our tendency to, um, to focus on, on the present and, and not on the future, uh, sometimes it makes sense to just lean into that tendency, right? But to recast our mindset in a way that really focuses on why the things that are going to be good for us in the long term are also going to be good for us in the short term, right? So why it is that um, that that can actually be beneficial to do these things today as well. Um, this is one of the things that I think probably was the biggest insight for myself in shifting my own relationship with exercise. So mm. for me, exercise used to always be like, this is something I ought to do for the long term, right? For my future self. And short-term barriers always kept getting in the way. Big, biggest one for me is I'm too busy, right? It's not that I didn't like doing it, but uh, there's always something else right. that, that is more pressing. Especially as and, a parent. <laughs> yeah, especially as a parent, right? And, and working full-time and all kinds of things going on, right? And so the, the shift for me was to stop thinking about exercise as something I was doing for my long-term self but to start thinking about it as something I was doing for myself today and in the near future. Um, because it turns out there are all kinds of short-term benefits to exercise. 
right? So you tend to have better mood. It's um, it's great for stress, stress relief. Um, it tends to improve your concentration. It can be fun. It's something you can do with your kids. It can, you know, various things like that. Um, it helps you to sleep better. It helps you to concentrate more. So all of these sorts of things are actually things that are going to be beneficial for me today. And in fact, can even answer some of the questions of, of those barriers, right? So if I think, well, I don't have time to exercise, I can reply to myself with, actually, I'm going to be you know, more energetic and concentrate better. So I'll get my work done more quickly. So that solves the, the time problem, right? Um, so thinking about those those ways that the psychological barriers that we set up for ourselves can also get circumvented um, is is really useful. It can actually have some nice um, actual actionable sorts of uh, strategies. Um, th- th- having you go through that example actually made me think of another um, um, uh, social researcher, um, Katie Milkman, who I'm sure you're probably familiar yeah. with. And I, I think about back to her book that she wrote about, you know, she gave this example, you know, of exercising, like the, the person she was studying, he, he could only, ex- he, he loved to watch Netflix, but he could only watch Netflix when he was like on his like bicycle or something. And he had it, he had his iPad hooked up to where it wouldn't turn on until he started pedaling. And I, I just think of that. Those things are great examples and, and, I don't know how I necessarily feel about the, the the term life hacks, but you know it. I guess whatever connection you can make to 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 better yourself, call it whatever you will. Obviously, it's the way to go. Um, yeah. There there is one topic I wanted I want to get to before I have to let you go. Is one area that we haven't talked about is how how do your work does or doesn't you know integrate with. Um, you know, people like ourselves that are parents, are, are there specific things that you've researched that may be beneficial for parents to know about or or think about or consider? That's a great question and not one I thought a lot about. So I don't, I'm not a developmental psychologist and I don't study parenting specifically. Um but I think that a lot of the insights that um come from just managing um, identity and also our relationships uh, are probably relevant uh, in a lot of ways. So um, one way of thinking about it, I guess, is that some of these these insights that can help us to um, feel better about ourselves, to stay motivated and that sort of thing are also things that we can work in in pretty natural ways into discussions with our kids. Right. So um, kids are kind of like little mini scientists and they're trying to figure out the world as they go along. Especially the teenagers, (laughs) especially the teenagers. But, you know, this is something that happens from a very early age. They might not be talking in scientific language, but they're testing out things. They're seeing how parents are going to react. We're responding to our kids successes and failures in various ways. Right. And um, and that gives them some clues about how they ought to react and what it might mean about their future and that sort of thing, right? So, um, and uh, so one insight that I could pull from Carol Dweck's work, who you might mm. also know, yes, um, is that um, a lot of these ideas about selves over time really also um, come down to whether or not we feel that we are fundamentally 
able to change or if we're somehow um, kind of born a certain way and static in, in our abilities, right? And so uh, Dweck has talked about mindsets, how sometimes we can have um, a fixed mindset, like we're born with a certain amount of intelligence and um, that's just what we've got, or a growth mindset, which is, you know, we can always uh, continue to develop, to learn more, to grow more, um, and there's nothing really limited in our potential or our capacity. And so the way that we respond to our kids can really end up helping them to develop different kinds of mindsets. For example, when um, they experience failure, sometimes parents might want to protect our kids, right, from uh, from painful things, from harms, that sort of thing. And of course, we, we should protect them from serious harms, but we shouldn't protect them from failures because those are really important, right, to learn how to navigate failures and uh, the bumps along the way. And to understand that, oh, actually, this is really important information for me, right? Because now I actually have more input into, um, you know, this didn't work, right? This failure means that this strategy didn't work, or maybe I have to put in more effort, or I have to try things differently, or I have to get some help to to learn something in a different way. Um, But this is an opportunity for me to learn something new and to try a new strategy, so reframing things in ways that allow kids to, you know, put those failures, keep them in the past, right? They're, those failures don't predict failure in the future, right? Um, but rather they help us to learn uh, different ways to go about things the next time. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the unique challenges with with kids is is not allowing them to, or I should say, helping to not allow them to to basically take a failure and extrapolate it into the future. Um, yeah. I know that's something that Teresa and I, or we work with our kids all the time and <laughs> we, we reference Carol. I don't know if Teresa knows who Carol Dweck is, but I certainly do. And have, have uh, wanted her to, to have, wanted to have a conversation with her, but it's, we, we are very aware of that growth versus fixed mindset. And it's something that, that we try as parents to really instill in our kids is that, that growth mindset. Um, and I think being, I think the word you use malleable. Um, so, um, well, this has been a tremendous conversation and it's, uh, I'm a lot of, this the thing is I, I love having people on like you that give, you know, concrete, you know, actual items. I think this, I think one of the things I wrote down was this, uh, write a letter to your future self and then back to your present self. I think that one's a great one. Um, but I'll, I'll close with the closing question. I ask um, all of my guests, which is what is the best thing about being a parent? One of the things that I love most, especially at the, the, the age and stage that my kids are. So I have a 16 year old and a 19 year old, both boys. They're, so different from one another and they're also so different from either of their parents in such a way that like I it gives me a lot of humility as a parent it makes me realize that like I can do my best but to some extent they're going to grow into the wonderful unique individuals that they are right and I can really take so much credit for that um my 19 year old is a really talented singer songwriter um and he's got a couple of albums out on Spotify um Cole Allen, if you want to. I was going to say, we need to, we will need to link that in our show notes. Cole Allen. Cole Allen. Yeah. Uh, He's got a different last name from me. Um, And, uh, and neither my husband or I can barely 
carrier too, right? So so although we've tried to connect him with people who can help him to, to develop those skills, it's definitely not from either of us. My 16-year-old is uh, just absolutely loves team sports and is so great with just like, you know, the social connection and the coordination and all that kind of stuff. Um, and neither my husband or I, even though we we like physical activity, we're definitely not team sports people. I'm barely coordinated enough to, <laughs> to walk through a room half the time. Um, and so these are just things that they, they discovered on their own. Um, and as parents, we can help to support those things, but also to just, you know, recognize that we're not making mini me's, but we're, we're making individual, that we're, we're helping individuals to find themselves. Well, that's that I think is a wonderful place, uh, to, to close. I think this first conversation with you and because I, I feel many more to come in our, in our, in our future. Um, so Ann Wilson, thank you so much for being on the emotional balance sheet podcast. That was great. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the emotional balance sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.